So welcome, this is week four of decolonial Marxism. Uh, and we're focusing this week on pedagogy. Uh, so Rodney's three chapters, uh, 10, 11, and 12 on pedagogy in this section. So the first chapter is on the British colonialist school of African historiography and the question of African independence. Specifically, Rodney's dealing with the three academic views of African independence. The colonialist view that the colonial rulers out of their own goodwill granted independence for which Africans had been trained. The nationalist view, which is that Africans through mass nationalist parties wrested political independence through struggle. And the socialist or neo-colonial view, which is that there is a continuation of power and that the colonial powers promoted the handover of the trappings of sovereignty rather than real sovereignty so that African independence meant a false decolonization. Rodney's focusing on two specific British Africanists in this section. Uh, there's Sir, Sir Alan Burns, who was a colonial civil servant. He has a book referring to himself as the last imperialist. Uh, and he announced that he was basically born into the colonial civil service. His grandfather and father were both members. He was a former governor of Ghana when it was called the Gold Coast and Nigeria. And Rodney calls him an unimpeachable spokesman of British colonialism. Marjorie Perham, on the other hand, was more of an academic rather than a civil servant. Uh, she was a well-known friend of the colonial office and an active Africanist at Oxford University, offering courses to civil servants, so helping train and perpetuate the next generation of, uh, of colonial administrators and training as well colonialist-minded fellows at Oxford who write on African history. So on both layers of analysis, the administrators of empire and the pedagogues of empire who then go into the academic writing of history, creating the narratives of empire itself. And she offered, uh, she wrote that both informal and informal education given by the British brought to Africa the ideas of freedom and democracy, the conception of the nation state. So this very patronizing view of liberty, democracy, freedom from the British perspective and argued that schools in British colonies taught the assertion of liberties from Magna Carta the Reform Act. So Rodney discusses this in saying that the British uh, Africanists basically believe that they invented freedom and then brought it to Africa subsequently. And he argues that this is a, an essential point in the writing of history to deprive Africans and other colonized subjects of agency. He points out that Marjorie Perham argues that nationalism as a tool of revolution uh, like other weapons turned against the West, has been purloined from the West. So this, again, uh, lack of agency for the colonized subject in, in revolting. The ideal of democratic freedom and an almost indefinable sense of moral obligation towards the weak have been learned very largely from Britain herself. And as Rodney points out, this statement is redolent with bourgeois and colonialist assumptions, confusion, and deceit. Even the statement itself is completely contradictory and paradoxical in terms of the British believing that they brought uh, the moral obligation towards the weak. And he also is out to debunk another lie, which is that of indirect rule. Sir Alan Burns, who called indirect rule local government, claimed that it is an excellent school in which the difficult art of self-government can be learned. Rodney says that whatever, self, whatever indirect rule was, it definitely was not training in self-government. Uh, because power and responsibility were always in the hands of the colonizers. 
and it marked the termination of the exercise of political power by the African people on behalf of, or by the strata of the African population on behalf of others. So essentially the historical writing, uh, the revisionist writing of indirect rule as a self-government, a training in the art of government, when in actuality indirect rule is something that, that we hear in schools all the time about British colonialism being more indirect, it wasn't a, a personal domination. Instead, Rodney says quite clearly that it, it was, and if not, it was through political agents uh, working on behalf of the colonizers. And there are several times where colonial pedagogues make it very clear what their intention was for their pedagogy. Rodney quotes Sir Arthur Creech Jones, who as Secretary of State for the Colonies in 1948, argued that the central purpose of British colonial policy was to quote, guide the, col the colonial territories to responsible self-government within the Commonwealth. So self-government, but of course, always within the orbit of British colonial rule. And it makes it very clear that pedagogy itself down to the level of the education system was designed uh, to keep colonies in a neo-colonial state. And they have many points where they openly admit neo-colonialism. Rodney discusses the British historian W.R. Crocker, who had an argument around whether to suppress or appease nationalist movements. And Crocker argued it was essential to appease and said, by appease, I mean that the existence and the reality of the nationalist movement must be taken very seriously and efforts must be bent to controlling it, guiding it and competing with it up until the moment when power can be transferred with a reasonable prospect of inflicting no undue suffering upon the docile majority. Again, this patronizing paternalistic view about the approach to the nationalist movements themselves but what's fascinating about statements like these is it's clear that the British view their pedagogy as shaping the nationalist movements towards a more reformist, a more passive, uh, a more liberal and reconciliatory uh, gesture rather than a full revolutionary break with colonialism. And Rodney says that that's very related to the British historians themselves as agents of a bourgeois worldview and specifically one situated in the context of the Cold War for anti-communism. He says that the British colonial school of historians have many, have manifold limitations. Most of them flow from the bourgeois worldview, but especially there is no piece of writing free of references to the Soviet Union and communism. Explicitly and implicitly, there is the recognition that their interpretation of what happened in Africa is part of the, the struggle to determine whether capitalism or socialism shall triumph. Rodney also brings this up in the Russian Revolution text that he has where he talks about how historians writing about the Russian Revolution, British historians, colonial historians would then take that literature, very negative view of the Russian Revolution, put it into schools in the third world and basically shape an anti-communist view within the third world through their pedagogy, through their historical writing. And this contributes to the British revisionist interpretation of decolonization itself, turning decolonization from a violence revolutionary process meant to deprive society of colonial control into uh, a gesture of goodwill and always uh, denying that there was any self-interest involved in decolonization. So just a summary of all of those points in terms of the significance of why historical writing matters to Rodney. He argues that first it shapes a worldview. Uh, it's still the majority position among European scholars, and there is a new neo-colonialist school after colonialism or in post-colonial time who is 
revamping, refurbishing the old interpretations and jettisoning the more objectionable points, um, but also saying that it's uh, a historical view, not only for historians, it's also the expression of class, national, racial, and other presuppositions. And basically arguing that the British public in general will adopt the views of British colonialist historians and then use them to view events in Africa through that lens. He also argues that there are new neo-colonial collaborations even within the writing of history. So he's pointing to African research historians compiling texts for post-colonial schools in collaboration with whites who are very much tied to the old colonial structures. He points to two examples of Joseph Anane of Nigeria, who handed over a chapter on colonial rule in West Africa to W.E.F. Ward, who was an educational officer on the staff of the British Colonial Office, and another of Gideon Wise and Derek Wilson, who wrote East Africa through a thousand years, Wise being Kenyan, Wilson an English history master at a white settler-oriented Nairobi school. But this time Rodney points out that this example is even more egregious uh, because it's advancing a coherent colonialist view of decolonization itself and made more dangerous because it will infiltrate under the name of an African historian. So perpetuating that colonial view, but using uh, historians trained in a post-colonial period to advance it. Rodney concludes by asking, must another generation of African youth be asked to write and believe in such European fairy tales? And we wanted to just share briefly how the contemporary British writing of history continues to adopt this colonial revisionist point of view, specifically centered around the death of Queen Elizabeth II, how a lot of outlets that have been publishing on her death have focused on the best collaborative aspects of uh, the British Empire's relationship with Africa. They love to talk about her dance with Kwame Nkrumah, her friendship with Nelson Mandela, neglecting entirely her presiding over violent crimes in Kenya and South Africa across the African continent. So the continued British writing of history itself is meant to be an ideological expression of colonialism and of neocolonialism. It's meant to foster the view of friendship, of collaboration and community over the acknowledgement of the reality of history and the violence of colonialism itself. And that is all part of a strategy, uh, especially these tributes coming out focusing on the African Commonwealth at a time when countries in the Caribbean like Barbados are breaking out of the Commonwealth and attempting to assert their true independence for the first time. These are all meant to reinforce a sort of view that Britain and African uh, and other post-colonial countries, especially in the Caribbean, can sort of live in harmony um, and deny the reality of the situation. So Chris, do you want to take it from there? Uh, yeah. Um, so chapter 11 also continues um, the book's section on pedagogy. It's about education in colonial Africa, how the various colonial empires set up education in in, in Africa, and Rodney begins by saying, you know, uh, a balance sheet approach to the colonial period in Africa invariably fastens onto the building of schools as a decisive element in favor of colonial benevolence. 
no attempt is made to argue, sorry, no attempt is made to explain how this benefited or developed Africa and the, Afri and the Africans. But the argument carries great force of a universalized assumption that Western education per se is good. Africans came to believe, believe it, and the vast majority still do believe it. The past political awareness in Africa, more often than not, leads to denunciation of missionaries, colonial school, Shakespeare, and cultural heroism. So, for Rodney, uh, the is a general assumption, and even today, that Western education is superior and beneficial for Africans. That, you know, learning about European history, European literature is a way of accessing the modern world. Uh, for him, this isn't. This is true, and later you later on you see that these ideas or these the curricula implemented in colonial Africa is only a meant to aid the further on the development of the continent. Next slide. Yeah, uh, speaking of one of development, he says that colonial education was only meant to ensure that Africans will feel certain jobs in the lowest echelons of the economic and administrative sector. Education, uh, basically um, during the colonial period, Africans were only meant, were only allowed to serve in lower level positions, such as secretaries or clerks, and that education, and the education that was, the education system that was implemented was only meant to train those Africans to work in those kind of positions. It wasn't, it was, it, it, it was meant to set, cement the role that Africans are meant to play in the, in, in the world system. Uh, Rodney says that, Education at its best seeks to bring out the potential of individuals to serve their own society and master their, their own environment. Colonial education is out of the patterns of education which perform these functions and soft that instead learn with the advancement of the early society, and which usually had little to do with increasing African mastery of their own environments. As I mentioned, um, the curricula are with Colonial education tended to be one developed in Europe for European students that had nothing to do with African history, the African environment, and African society as a whole. And so you had the privileged African students going out to study European ideas or European history and literature who have been alienated to their own, to the indigenous environment. Uh, again, this is a form of educational underdevelopment in which individuals are not raised or are not educated to serve their own society, or rather to administer the, to further ad, help administer the colonial domination of the society by foreign power. Next slide. And on hegemony and ideology, Rodney quotes, um, Producing Africans to aid in the task of colonial administration was, of course, not simply a matter of functional skills, but also of ideology. Always learning is presented within a given ideological framework. Europeans could not do otherwise but instruct Africans within the bourgeois framework, which was brought from Europe. Uh, again, this is this is something that this, this idea of education as ideology is something that's common in. 
in, in Marxism. You know, Marx and Gramsci explained that the ruling class, the ideas of, the, of, of any given period are the ideas of the ruling class. And in this period, the ideas that were transmitted through education was the bourgeois ideas that Europe, that Europe had developed back, back, back in Europe. And this, this is, um, so like when, when, when I mentioned, and when Rodney also mentioned that education was primarily meant to, to, to create, to create a workforce of Africans in low level positions, this was not the only, the only, uh, the only function. It was also meant to educate those Africans in the ideas of, of Euro European colonialists to, to cement and to justify ideas like white supremacism or capitalist imperialism. He goes on saying that African rulers had been deprived of power in the process of imposing European rule but they retained varying degrees of authority in the eyes of their own people. And our colonial systems used what they call chiefs, agents within their administrative systems. The French expected that all who aided them in the work of administering African territory on behalf of France should have an ideological perspective determined by the French themselves. Um, next one. Now, um, the tragic comedy of colonial education. Uh, Rodney explained the education system was doubly dangerous because it also fostered white racism and destroyed the African sense of identity to the point of self-hate. The kind of studies done on the impact of white education on the Blacks of the US and a sort of conclusion taught by Fanon of the white mass of the Black West Indians are also highly relevant to the educational situation of colonial Africa. Those who were most qualified were understandably the most alienated. The highly trained black lawyers of West Africa performed the role of black Englishmen so fastidiously as to outdo the models they were imitating. The picture they present is both droll and tragic. Colonial education in this respect is a tragic comedy. So during this period, um, the well-educated Africans were allowed to attend European schools, who were allowed to attend schools built by missionaries or to go to the United States or, or the UK or France to study. These were people who came from, from privileged backgrounds or were, and were also incredibly alienated from their respective societies. There were Black Africans dressing up as Englishmen. You know, for them, they had no relation to their society as they were not educated in ways that would develop a society or other ways that would that would be a that ways that say an Englishman or a Frenchman would be educated. And so you know if you and it's it's, it's quite interesting but if you watch you know certain interviews from from the 1940s or, or the or 1960s, you know you hear these um African leaders educated in the UK or you know African or upper class West African uh, West, Afri West Africans speaking with the most perfect English accent and we can understand the dissonance that that, that that presents you know um, someone from somewhere like say Ghana or Nigeria sounding like 
having the most upper class perfect English accents and whose education has nothing to do with his own with the advancement of his own people. Um, next, next slide. In addition to this tragic comedy uh, or with this dissonance, there was also racism within the education system implemented by the colonialists. Rodney says the authoritarianism of colonialism reinforced the authoritarianism of backwards scholasticism. Wherever there were white settlers, the children went to schools whose curricular and standards were more or less equivalent to the best metropolitan schools of the time, so as to allow such white children to return and fit into their own society when it, when it so decided. This discrimination was most marked when the societies had come into existence. The education offered to Africans was quantitatively and qualitatively as inferior as it could be, and still remains consistent with the European objective of training Africans who could be effective auxiliaries in the work of colonization. So in settler societies like Kenya, Algeria, or South Africa, the disparity within the education system was very, very obvious. You know, the white settler children were allowed to have access to an education that was qualitatively on the same level as the, the ones that would be getting back in Europe. And this was because there was an understanding that at the, at the end of the day, these went, obviously they were Africans, but they were, you know, they were, despite their birthplace, still European. And this unequal application of, um, this unequal, this unequal education should tell you the, the reasons the colonialists implemented such, such education in that they deemed Africans as, as inferior and unworthy of, 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 a, of a superior education system. Next slide. And next on the division of labor and education, Roddy explains when he says that one, once one understands that, that Africa has a fixed role to provide unskilled labor for the international capitalist system, it's not surprising that scientific and technical education was never a marked feature of colonial education. Such developments would have contradicted the very purposes of colonial rule. What he's saying is that basically Africa's role in the world system had been, has been determined to supply unskilled labor. And therefore, there was no need for, you know, for the Africans to produce doctors or engineers, you know, people who have access to scientific and technical education. They were, Africans were doomed only to a role of supplying, as we've, as we've mentioned in previous sessions, supplying raw materials to Europe, and there wasn't really need for scientific and technical education in in carrying out those roles, at least on the on the on the minds of um, according to the European colonialists. Uh, next slide. In addition to this, Rodney talks about the the relationship between education and dependency, saying a complete catalogue of evils of the colonial education process in Africa would be long indeed. It was not as decisive that the economic factor bringing a body on the development of Africa. Indeed, in examine, examining the concept of dependency as a crucial aspect of one of 
development, one cannot fail to realize the major contribution of the education system in producing the individuals with all the syndromes of psychological dependence with all the lifestyle I derived from serving as European puppets in Africa. A great example of this is Francophone Africa and the elites in Francophone Africa. A lot of them are educated. Obviously, Nicole Mera educated in, in French, French culture, and they still are to this day. And the lifestyles that they live and the, the way they view France, these are the elites, by the way, in Francophone countries makes them incredibly alienated from the people. Uh, it maintains the, the system of, 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 of French dominance over Francophone Africa. And this is the role that education can only play under a colonial or neo-colonial arrangements. It can only maintain or exacerbate the relations of dependency between the metropolitan countries and uh, peripheral countries. Next slide. And then Rodney also goes on to explain the role of colonial education in revolution, saying everywhere on the African continent, education originating with colonialists was meant to ensure mental and physical enslavement. To a large extent, it encouraged dysfunction. For every aspect of Africa's subjugation also contained the seeds of revolution. Since capitalism and colonial guys could not satisfy even the minimal aspirations of the African people, no other facet of the African experience so clearly illustrates the dialectic of oppression and resistance, historical or development, the key aspect of the story, while the rebirth of freedom is the other. Uh, next slide. Great, thanks so much, Chris. I can take over chapter 12. So chapter 12 is focused on education in Africa and contemporary Tanzania. Uh, so a recapitulation of some of the key points on colonial education that Chris just discussed, Rodney has in the first section of this chapter on education in Africa. First, he focuses on the fact that African education was for communal and universal societies, whereas colonial education was for particular and elitist societies and that translated to differences in their implications within these societies, specifically the fact that colonial education for those elitist societies was then imposed within a, a communal societies before colonialism, and it necessarily uh, aggravated and uh, aggrandized the more elitist aspects of, hierarchy, of hierarchies that then colonialism was imposing in the form of uh, accentuating or aristocratic functions like Chris just mentioned in that last chapter of training uh, agents for perpetuation of colonial rule. He discusses the African versus the European personality, specifically what were the needs of education for each, and the fact that as Europe was developing capitalism faster, colonial education was applying for needs that Africans didn't have yet, and this necessarily meant that education was imperfect and mismatched uh, when it was attempted to be applied within the African continent, specifically that it was attempting to implement the needs of education for a capitalist system that Africa did not have and historically would not have had if Europe had not imposed it um, and then used it for underdevelopment. So colonial education becomes a, a superstructural development out of the political economy of colonialism. 
And Rodney argues that, that within African education, there is a promotion of interdependence versus Europe promoting individualism, again, related to the needs of capitalism uh, and how education facilitates those needs. Finally, an orientation to or away from the life environment, the role of education connecting to the economy. Rodney has a couple examples in this chapter of that. For example, he discusses how uh, Fulani herdsmen would have different needs in terms of educational usage of language for describing cattle herding. And European education did not facilitate that whatsoever, especially through language. There was a linguistic imperialism in education that did not match the life environment of uh, not even to say pre-colonial, but to say necessarily uh, the society um, that was unaffected by, or at least was attempting to be independent of colonialism rather than a like a, a traditional way that Europeans would present things as a, a traditional pre-colonial role. Instead, Rodney is simply saying that the needs of political economy uh, within societies uh, before they were impacted and, and utterly changed and devastated by colonialism was simply different than colonial education could facilitate. And Rodney's focusing on Tanzania as an example of a society that is dealing with the legacy of all of those features of colonial education, all four of those features, in terms of how it's thinking about planning after colonialism, and, and specifically Ujamaa is a system of thinking about an African socialism that is attempting to be implemented. So he says that the legacy of colonial rule of all of those factors was a promotion of a high rate of illiteracy, as we just discussed, very contrary to the notion we typically get that colonialism, you know, may it may have done some bad things, but colonialists typically argue that they built schools and promoted illiteracy. Uh, in reality, Rodney says that illiteracy as a result of training workers, specifically agricultural workers, was an imposed policy. And Ujima planners, as a result, had to think in, to re-universalize education. They were attempting to do this within 10 years of independence, and they were able to make a lot of gains in terms of the number of children going to school, the elimination of the racist system of colonial education. But obviously, Rodney is going to highlight how there were needs that had to surpass even these most basic immediate features of of post-colonial education. So he talks about one of the examples of, of these programs being the National Service Program, that Tanzania had to struggle to first retrieve its education from a colonial uh, to a distinctly African path. And this also had to be in the forward-looking context of specifically socialist reconstruction after colonialism. The National Service was meant as a way to bring youth into this more active participation in the life of their community, whereas colonial education had promoted a detached uh, a detached person who looked down upon the community, looked down upon specifically rural agriculture as, uh, again, the colonial imposition of a theoretical framework that viewed these as a, uh, a pre-colonial traditional or even colonialists would use the type of language of primitivism. Um, but Rodney is saying instead that the Ujamaa government had to find a way to get youth in particular to look at these active participations in, in life, not as some, some kind of uh, backwards way of living, but instead as the, the very nature of, of Ujamaa and of post-colonial existence. So he, he highlights how the way to facilitate that was through military training for self-defense, which colonialism had deprived uh, the colonial subject of, and agriculture and craft skills 
that were relevant to economic development that otherwise workers had been deprived of these basic skills and instead been forced into the most super exploited labor under colonialism. The national service was on the premise that young people should be educated to serve rather than to command peasants and workers. And Rodney specifically is discussing how university students were within this context, uh, a pinnacle of old elitism, how university students immediately after these policies were announced protested uh, in Tanzania in 1966. And Rodney says this was a confrontation of the people versus the elite. And being an elite without power, university students were disciplined. So the kind of bourgeois tendencies within university students that he's analyzing still to this day, uh, seeing how university students believe that they deserve a better uh, quality of life than the average worker, and they don't have any desire to ground themselves. This is very related to, I think, just an interjection, but Rodney's writings and groundings with my brothers are always kind of playing a role throughout here, as we discussed in the very first week. His belief that you have to ground and integrate oneself within the working class, the peasant class, rather than viewing oneself as detached and uh, and loose from there, you have to be very much integrated within those you're you're struggling on behalf of. And he points out that one of the the key features of Tanzania as well was the role of decolonizing language. This is generally part of the conversation around decolonization, and he asserts that Swahili as a lingua franca had its implications within how to transcend the stratification and external orientation of colonial education. English, which was the teaching medium in the colonial secondary school, was a mechanism of alienation. And he says that the continued use of English and French in post-colonial Africa keeps the African petty bourgeois attached to their masters. With the introduction of Swahili as a language of national education, those who entered the secondary schools were offered the opportunity of defining their visions of the world in a language which grew out of their own environment. This is very similar to the arguments put forward by Ngugi Wationgo in Decolonizing the Mind, when he is writing about why he is switching from writing in English to writing in Gikuyu instead. He's making a similar argument about how there needs to be a worldview affiliated with a language growing out of one's own environment rather than solely based within English and French uh, that continues to facilitate this relationship of neocolonialism. And this is part of Rodney's discussion around Nyerere's education for self-reliance. This was part of the famous Arusha Declaration in 1967. And we're going to discuss more exactly what was Ujamaa, what conditions it came out of, and what policies it implemented in the next and last two weeks. Um, but just this is a brief discussion of education for self-reliance, particularly. This policy started with an awareness that the colonized were educated to be dependent, and this was an education for dependence. In socialist self-reliant Tanzania, they should be dependent on their own efforts. And as I was just discussing, one of the main goals here was to facilitate a better form of primary education. They pushed the starting age uh, upward to seven years and leaving to 14 years. So there's a general view that if you educated youth at such a young age and then left them after primary school with no education after the age of, of 12 previously, there was a, a view that the, the, even the Rodney has this line where he says, the concept of the teenager as such was filling in a very specific role in European society as a, an idle, uh, non-active subject between 14 and 18. And Rodney says that there was a view that 
instead, one had to facilitate primary education at that young age and, and emphasize the activity of what otherwise would be classified as a teenager and still growing and developing one's mind. He argued that education placed emphasis on agricultural work because people previously had been, uh, well, first of all, that the vast majority of people in the country were, were earning their subsistence living through agriculture. And then to say that previously manual work in agriculture had been degraded and downgraded as seen as a, a significant or relevant form of activity. Instead, the educated African elite, elite despised and still despised the peasants. And there was a desire to change that point of view within a new generation being educated. All of this is really related to Paulo Freire uh, and the pedagogy of the oppressed. Uh, Rodney has a really interesting point where he discusses Freire in this section and talks about the fact that Freire, when asked to comment on education for self-reliance in Tanzania, replied that it looked liberating on paper, but that the answer would only be found in praxis because the question is not is it, but do it. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting point. Rodney has a footnote to this chapter as well, where he talks about Ferry had gone to Dar es Salaam and done sort of an evaluation of uh, education for self-reliance and fitted in within his general framework of the pedagogy of the oppressed. Rodney then argued that one of the key reflections that Ferry had had that he found very relevant was that the actual form of the teacher within these uh, Ujama schools still continued to be somewhat of an authoritarian bureaucratic approach, even though they were boasting of self-reliance. So the actual function of the teacher as an authoritarian disciplinarian figure had not been broken with. There was still a view that that was fine as long as there was a greater integration of students within the democratic process. But Rodney and Ferrari saw to an extent that this education for self-reliance was not facilitating a, a dialogic process as Ferrari would discuss. And that is what led Rodney to conclude that rather than just focusing on the colonial education system, as important as it is, the transformation of that system in Tanzania and Africa as a whole was just part of a much broader front of combat against imperialism and neocolonialism. He, he saw that education transformation alone would not lead to total liberation. It was dialectically impossible for profound change to take place in that old education system without, uh, within antecedent and concomitant transformations of all aspects of the political economy. And then he says the prognosis for change in Tanzania and, and African education processes is therefore the same as the evaluation of the prospects of socialist revolution and total liberation from colonialism and neocolonialism. Obviously, these two things play into one another as Rodney and Freire identify education is an important way within which one can delineate the objectives of socialism itself. But Rodney thought it was very important to stress that if socialism, anti-imperialism were not being prioritized specifically in the fight against neocolonialism, then it wouldn't be possible to change an education system because it is reliant on that base of political economy in order to shape the objectives and the implications of education itself. So the goals of education for self-reliance would always be wrapped up within the goals of Ujima itself. And as we'll, we'll discuss in the next two weeks, Rodney had some, some critiques about the way in which African socialism was being applied within Tanzania. And he points in one last word to an example of Cuba socialist education, how Tanzania was reflecting on it. 
and pointing out that many young Tanzanians have not been very happy about the idea of accepting incomplete primary education. This was because Tanzania was in a transition phase over time uh, to implement universal primary education. Their imagination has been caught by the kind of experiment which went on in Cuba and which provided Cuban people with universal literacy. So there was a clear inspiration from the Cuban model in Tanzania and there was frustration when that model was not being implemented directly in Tanzania. And that is our entire presentation. So our questions for the week in terms of reflection are these. Uh, why does Rodney emphasize the importance of the writing of history itself? Uh, and we can think about this orthodox phrase that always gets repeated that history is written by the victors. Then we can relate education to dependency theory itself. How does this play a role in underdevelopment at a superstructural level? What were the goals of post-colonial education in Tanzania and how were they implemented? That's something we can have a discussion on going forward the next two weeks. And how do Rodney's points relate to the other radical pedagogues like Freire? How do they relate to decolonial thinkers like Ngugi? And we can broaden that conversation up as well to other decolonial thinkers like uh, Mignolo uh, and others who have these similar kind of reflections in terms of language and reflections on worldview in general.